0: Well, how are we doing? Good. Good morning. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Matthew uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter eleven, this morning as we continue. Uh, In our sermon series, The King and His Kingdom, picking back up uh, an ongoing sermon series in Matthew's Gospel. This morning, we find ourselves in chapter 11, and uh, we'll be working our way from verse 16 through the end of the chapter. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 30, as we continue to see two more evidences of Israel's rejection of their king. Again, Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 16. I trust that you're there or close to it, then we'll pray. And then we'll dive right into our sermon. So if you would uh, pray with me again, please. Father, we pray that you would bless both the reading and the teaching and the hearing and the living out of your word. Father, as we turn to see um, more truth from your word, and in particular as we look at the ministry of Jesus and uh, the people's response to him. And in their response, we can see uh, the response of, of people today as well. And so we ask that through your spirit that you would teach us and that you would instruct us and that you would correct us and that you would do your work in our hearts and in our lives we pray in Christ's name and God's people said amen well I want to share with you a story uh, from a man by the name of Jeff Kemp you can see the picture on the screen behind me he's a former NFL quarterback and he tells the following story in his book rules to live by both on and off the playing field and I quote Jeff here in 1988 I was playing for the Seattle Seahawks Against my old team, the 49ers, Dave Craig, who was our starting quarterback, had been injured, and it was my turn to start. He says, coming out of pregame meal, one of the offensive coaches put his arm around me and strongly affirmed his faith in me. I want you to know how happy I am that you are a quarterback I have been waiting for this day. He continues to write, well, that day, I played the worst game of my entire career. At the end of the first half, the 49ers were ahead, 28 to zip. He says, Every person in the kingdom was booing me. As I came off the field at halftime, I knew that I might be bent. I waited through the players to find the coach who had been so supportive of me before the game, and, and, and I began to approach him, saying, Coach. And as I did that, he turned his back on me without a word. Then he went to the other quarterback, put his arm around him, and began to discuss the plays that he would be running during the second half in place of me. That coach, he writes, didn't say one word to me for the rest of the game, even though we stood, next, we stood next to each other on the sidelines. He said, nor did he say anything to me on Monday when we watched the game films. In fact, for about a month, there was complete rejection. And then he writes these words. He simply couldn't deal with the fact that I hadn't lived up to his hopes that I hadn't helped the team succeed. He rejected me relationally because my performance fell short. Well, friends, last week we returned to the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 11, and we saw the first evidence of the nation of Israel's turning their backs on their King, on their Messiah. And the first evidence was that of disillusionment. We saw that the nation was becoming disillusioned uh, with the person and the, and the work of Jesus. And we saw that even Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, was disillusioned with Jesus' ministry. And he questioned, Are you the one that we should expect, or is there one to come? Friends, we find ourselves now in Matthew chapter 11 at a critical point in the life and ministry of Jesus, much like the point that Jeff Kemp found himself at during the halftime of the game. See, the coach's confidence in him had been great, But then it turned into what would become a rejection of Jeff because Jeff failed to live up to the hopes and the expectations of his coach. Friends, the same could be said of the people of Israel and their relationship to Jesus, right? Their hopes of who he would be, of who they thought Messiah would be and what Messiah would do. Well, Jesus, so to speak, was not living up to their expectations. And so their disillusionment would eventually turn into dissatisfaction. And their dissatisfaction with Jesus would eventually turn into disregard. And so Matthew now gives us two more evidences of the nation's pending rejection of their king. That of dissatisfaction in verses 16 through 19. And ultimately it, it led to their disregard of Jesus as their savior and as their king in verses 20 through 30. And so as we begin, uh as we work our way through chapter 11, we see a shift occurring. The first half of chapter 11, essentially Jesus talks about the ministry of John the Baptist. Well, we see that he's going to begin now to talk about his own ministry and the people's response to that starting in verse 16. And so we begin then with the illustration the illustration that Jesus uses of his ministry and the people's response to his ministry, starting in verse 16. So he now proceeds to describe the Jews' dissatisfaction, both with John and himself more fully. And he does so using an illustration, uh, an illustration that might be familiar to us. It's, It's the illustration of children at play of children at play. So if you have kids, certainly you've seen that before. If you once were a kid, as we all were, you, you played games, pre, uh, pretend games, right? And so maybe you played this as, as a child, or you've seen your children play. You know, they, children like to mimic adult life, right? So they, they pretend to play house. Or they pretend to play school, right? Or they pretend to play doctor. And, and you know how that goes. They're, they're mimicking life. Well, Jesus is going to use the illustration of the children playing in the marketplace. And, and they're, they're playing a funeral. And they're playing wedding. And Jesus is going to use this illustration to talk about that generation's dissatisfaction with him. In fact, he compares that generation to spoiled children who are never happy with the game that is chosen. Now, certainly that never happened with you. Surely it never happens in your house. But occasionally, in my house, one of the children say, let's play such and such a game. And they all say, yeah, but then there's one. There's always one, right? No, I don't want to play that game. Well, what if we played this game? No, I don't want to play that game either. Friends, Jesus says that the nation of Israel is, is like that child. They're never happy. They're never satisfied. So, starting in verse 16, To what, Jesus says, can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. See, in this section, Jesus compares the nation to marketplace children, and they wouldn't be pleased by anything their friends suggested. One child would say to the other, Hey, guys, let's play wedding today. And the others would say, no, no, I don't want to play wedding. And so the children would say, okay, well, well, let's play funeral. If you don't want to play wedding, let's play funeral. No, 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 I don't want to play that either. Well, what do you want to play, right? This is the illustration that Jesus uses to talk about the people's response, both to John the Baptist's ministry and to his ministry himself. John Calvin once wrote on this passage saying, and I quote, Israel, the people of Israel was to be God's darling, like their precious children. Israel was to be God's darling, but instead they had become his brats. Jesus, in in a sense, is saying that the children of Israel are, are acting like brats. They're not satisfied with anything that he or John was doing. And so in verses 18 and 19, he applies the illustration, right? Starting in verse 18, he likens the people's response to John the Baptist, which he sort of likens to a, a funeral, a funeral dirge, his 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 lifestyle and his ministry. He, he, he likens to a funeral and the children, well, they didn't want to play funeral. Verse 19, for John came, neither eating nor drinking, right? And they said he has a demon. In other words, they're not satisfied with John, right? John came and he lived where? He lived in the desert, right? He was, he was alone. He didn't go to parties. He didn't eat and drink. And his ministry, well, it was, it was one of calling the nation to repentance. And he wore harsh clothing, right? Sort of, he, he likens the ministry of John the Baptist to a funeral. But the people of, of Israel, no, they didn't respond to that, is what Jesus is saying. Next, in verse 19, he likens the people's response to himself, to children not wanting to play the game of wedding. Notice verse 19, the Son of God came eating and drinking. And they said, he is a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collector's. And sinners. see the point that Jesus's illustration is making is simply this that the people no matter what he did or no matter what John the Baptist did they, they were unwilling to receive the Word of God right they their concept of what Messiah would be and what Jesus's kingdom would be about was different than what Jesus was presenting and doing and so they rejected him. This is what Jesus is saying and so to end the illustration. He uses a proverbial saying. He says, But but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In other words, the good deeds that John the Baptist and that he himself were doing vindicated the very different lifestyle and ministry choices that he and John the Baptist had pursued. And friends, we pause now for our first truth for today. And that's simply this. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. I think it's worth pointing out that the people's accusations of Jesus were both true and false, right? The son of man, Jesus said, came eating and drinking, and they said, here is a glutton. Friends, let me ask you, was Jesus a glutton? No, Jesus was no glutton. And they said, he's a drunkard. Friends, let me ask you, was Jesus a drunkard? No, Jesus was not a drunkard. But then they said, he is a friend of tax collectors. And sinners, friends, let me ask you a question. Was Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Yes, he was. Friends, let me ask you this question. Is he still a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Yes, he is. And friends, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that they were right in this accusation? Aren't you glad that when God became flesh, that he wasn't an enemy of sinners? even though Romans 5.8 tells us that we were His enemies. No, He is no enemy of sinners. He is a friend of sinners. And friends, this is wonderful news because guess what? You are. And guess what I am? We are sinners. And so we need Jesus to be friends with people like us. No, He was and still is the friends of sinners, of people like me and you. And beloved, we should rejoice in that truth. Now... Let me say this. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He is a friend of sinners. But that doesn't mean that He condones our sin. It doesn't mean He overlooks it. It doesn't mean that He says, I will take you exactly as you are and let you stay as you are. No, Jesus is a friend of sinners, so much so that He paid for our sins on the cross. He is a friend of sinners so much so that He gives us His Holy Spirit so that we can be separated from our sin. Friends, Jesus is a friend of sinners like me and you, but his love won't let us stay that way. That is the gospel of Christ. And so, after this opening illustration of Jesus' ministry, he moves on to verses 20 through 24, and we see indictment. We move from the illustration to the indictment on the generation that rejected him. Notice, in verses 20 through 24, we see the disregard that the people had of Jesus' ministry as he um, gives a, a a pretty stunning indictment on the lack of repentance and faith in him that he saw as he overlooked the cities of Israel. Now, years ago, there was a large statue of Jesus, and you can see it on the screen behind me. It was erected high in the Andes Mountains on the border between Argentina and Chile. In fact, the, uh, the statue is called Christ of the Andes, and it was meant to symbolize a pledge between the two countries, that as long as the statue stands, that there would be peace between Argentina and Chile. However, shortly after the statue was erected, the Chileans began to protest. They began to feel slighted, and here's the reason why. The statue had its back turned to the nation of Chile. And so people didn't like that, and people began to accuse and, and get, get upset. And so when the tension was the highest in the nation of Chile, a Chilean newspaper man saved the day. In fact, in his editorial that not only satisfied the people, it made them laugh. He, he wrote this about the statue. He said, the people of Argentina obviously need more watching over than the people of Chile do. And so uh, they were appeased by his comments. Friends, while it may make the Argentinians... Proud that Christ looks over their cities. If they are, were to read the verses that we're about to read, they might have second thoughts. Because as Jesus overlooks the cities of Israel, and He thinks about His ministry in three particular cities, He's going to pronounce judgment upon the people in those cities, because they saw spectacular miracles, and they heard His teachings, and they didn't respond. Let's see what Jesus says in verse 20. Then... Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, that is, uh, Gentile uh, cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, It will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, friends, Capernaum was sort of his home base there in the northern region of Galilee. He did many miracles in Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, remember that city in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained to this day, but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Wow, this is a scathing a, 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 a denouncement of three Jewish cities that were privileged to witness some of the, the most spectacular and greatest of jesus 's miracles but, it, but but he says, you saw the miracles you, you I was there you 've seen the evidence, but you Rejected me as your king nonetheless. And that leads us to a couple more truths for today that we see from this indictment of Jesus over these Jewish cities. And the second is this. Jesus' gospel calls for repentance. Friends, lest we think that the gospel uh, is absent of a call to repent, hear the words of Jesus. He, he, He looks at the cities that he ministered in, and he says, you're going to be judged because you didn't repent. John MacArthur comments on the peoples in these cities saying this, and I quote, Jesus' teachings perhaps mildly interested them, and his miracles entertained them, but nothing more. His grace never rent their hearts. His truth never changed their minds, which in the New Testament is literally what repentance means. His truth never changed their minds. His warning about sin never produced repentance. And his offer of salvation never induced faith. Friends, may I humbly ask you this question. Could these words be true of you? Could these words be said of your response to Jesus? If so, then heed the gospel's call for repentance from sin and from self, from you being king over your life, from Jesus being king over your life, or you trying to to be right with God on your own merits or works to trusting in what Christ has done. Friends, the Christian life begins with a single act of repentance and faith in Jesus, but it doesn't end there, right? Martin Luther famously says, says this, right? The, the, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. So, so one becomes a, a Christian when you repent of sin and self and you turn to Christ, but it, it, it continues as we struggle with sin, as we fight for holiness. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. And there's another truth here from this passage. And friends, it's not a popular truth today. In fact, in our adult Sunday school class, we talked about this very subject this morning. Jesus' gospel not only includes a call for repentance, but it includes judgment for the unresponsive. You can't read Jesus' words and, and, and come to any other conclusion that there is judgment for those who refuse Him as their Savior. Friends, hear me, there will be a day of judgment. Does Jesus not make this clear? He refers to it at least twice in this passage. There will be a day in which men and women are held accountable for what they have done with Jesus. Friends, there is a heaven and there is a hell. Jesus speaks of it here. There is no third option. There is a New York Times article just this very week questioning if the modern world still needed to believe in hell. The article was entitled, Do We Still Need to Believe in Hell? Simple enough, right? Friends, let me ask you that question. Do we still need to believe in hell? Yes. Why? Did Jesus still believe in hell? Yes. And he believed in heaven. And he believed that he was the way to heaven. What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the what? I am the way. And I am the truth, and I am the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, these people were not coming to God the Father because they weren't coming through Jesus. They were rejecting Him. Don't be fooled, friends. Don't make the same mistake of rejecting Jesus and thinking that the gospel somehow lacks a call for repentance and faith in Jesus. It absolutely does. Well, we've seen the illustration of Jesus' ministry. We've seen the indictment. Of Jesus upon those who rejected His ministry. Now, as we look at verse 25, we see a beautiful invocation. Verses 25 through 27, uh, Jesus gives an invocation, which is a fancy word for a prayer. Jesus prays in this moment in the face of this rejection from the people, and He prays to His Father. And He gives us some insight as to the spiritual reality behind Both the rejection that he was facing and the acceptance of the very few who really believed that he was God's son. And so this invocation, oh, it's full of spiritual truth. It begins in verses 25 and 26 as Jesus praises his father for revealing gospel for revealing the significance of his miracles for revealing the reality of who he was in the offer of his kingdom he praises his father for revealing these truths to the humble and hiding them from the spiritually proud verse 25 at that time jesus said i praise you father lord of heaven and earth because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And it leads us to our fourth truth for today. And it's this. God is pleased to reveal truth to the humble. And he is pleased to hide it from the proud. Friends, let me ask this question. Why were the people who were rejecting Jesus rejecting him? Why? Why? Well, Jesus answers that. It's because the Father was hiding these truths from those who were, notice the text, they were wise and they were learned. Certainly a reference to the religious leaders of Israel in the day who were reliant upon obedience to the law to make themselves right with God, which, friends, is the highest form of arrogance, right? To think that somehow we as sinners could be right with God through our own merit, through our own good works, the British pastor Charles Spurgeon of old once commented on the British Navy. If you know your history at at, at the time uh, that S- Spurgeon ministered, the British Navy was the strongest in the world. And of course, it was Britain's boast. And the great pastor Charles Spurgeon once said this. He says, Does Britain think that she is Lord of the seas? Let her step out on the water and see how she does. Friends, let me ask you a question. Why were those rejecting him that were rejecting him? It's because they were proud. They did not think they needed him. Friends, let me ask you a question. Is that your response to Jesus? Are you proud, spiritually speaking? Do you think that you don't need him? Friends, don't be fooled. Let me ask you another question. Why were those who were receiving Jesus receiving him? Well, what does Jesus teach us? He says, You have hidden these things from the wise and learned, but in great contrast, you have revealed them, notice the image, to the who? To the little children, right? You've revealed them to the little children. And he uses this powerful image of a humble, dependent child who holds up his or her arms to to mommy or daddy, right? Children, they need a lot, do they not? And all the parents said what? Amen, right? Children need a lot, They can't do much on their own, right? They need, they're dependent. And in that sense, they they show a humility. Jesus is saying, friends, those who are accepting me, those who are believing in me, they're humble. They're hungry. They know that they can't do it on their own. And so the invocation then closes in verse 27, as Jesus says that, that, that the Father and Son, they know each other's will perfectly because they are both God, altogether God one and the same essence. And that those who come to know the Father through Jesus do so because Jesus reveals it to them as well. Verse 27, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And pay attention here. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so we have this beautiful invocation. It's, it's revealing of the situation, both then. And today. But finally, we come to maybe what is one of the most well known and one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture. It's the invitation that Jesus closes with, starting in verse 28. And what a lovely invitation it is. And it leads us to our final truth for today. Jesus' gospel, friends, not only includes a call to repent, not only does it include judgment for those who don't, but it includes an invitation to both of salvation and submission. Let's see that in the text. The invitation begins with an invitation for salvation. Verse 28, Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus' invitation for salvation begins with the simple yet profound truth that we must come to whom for it? What does he say? Come to the religious leaders. Is that what he says? Nope. Come to hard work. Is that what he says? Nope. Come to me. Come to me. It's not through good deeds or religious activity or even ethnic birth, as many of the Jews thought. No. Coming to him in humble faith and trust. Come to me, Jesus says. But the question is, who is who's invited? I mean, who is Jesus inviting to come to him? Well, he tells us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burden weariness here in the greek refers to the it's the image of a of a of a day laborer that is laboring in, in, in the field to the point of exhaustion and jesus uses this this image of physical labor i think to point to the spiritual labor of many in israel and friends many in our world today. That is, they are weary from exhausting themselves to try to please God with their own resources, with their own goodness. They are internally weary. But not only are they internally spiritually weary, but they are externally, what? Burdened, right? Burdened. likely refers to the rabbis and the teachers of the day adding rules To God's law in the Old Testament. Many, many, many rules that they added to the law in the Old Testament, which were virtually impossible to uphold, and it burdened the people down. You don't have to go there, but in Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus uses a very similar language of the Pharisees' teachings, and he says, "...they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders." But they themselves are not willing to lift even a finger to move them. And so, so to those who are internally weary of trying to be right with God, and they, and they can't on their own resources, out of their own goodness, goodness, to those who are externally weighed down by religion, Jesus says what? He says, come. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And then what does he promise? If you are internally weary and externally burdened, what does he promise? rest. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. But the big question is, what does he mean by that? What kind of rest is Jesus offering? Well, there's physical rest, I don't think that's what Jesus means. And then there's a spiritual rest. And I do think that is what Jesus means. It certainly involves a, a rest or a cessation from trying to achieve salvation on your own. I think that certainly could be what it means. But I think it also likely is drawing in a, an Old Testament image of the promised land, of, of, of rest. In fact, the author of Hebrews, if you're familiar with Hebrews, uses this Old Testament imagery of the, of the promised land a place of of rest. And the, the author of Hebrews says that, friends, we as Christians, we have this promised rest, this eternal rest. I think Jesus is referring to rest in heaven, to the ultimate rest that He is promising to those who would trust in Him. And so Jesus offers an invitation to them and friends, to you and to me. It's a call to salvation. It's a call to repentance and faith. But it's not only a call to salvation, because the Christian life is not just about getting saved, right? The Christian life begins when you trust in Christ, but friends, it continues as you you submit to Christ. And so Jesus uses this image of submission in verses 29 through 30 as He offers us an invitation of submission. Notice verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here Jesus uses a very familiar image in his day. See, in his day, the, the imagery of, of a yoke, of course, was taken from like a, a, a beast of burden, right? You're, you're familiar with what a yoke is. It was something that you would place on the back of a beast of burden in order to control that animal, in order to guide that animal, in order to get that animal to submit. And so Jesus is using this very uh, familiar image. He says, take my yoke upon you. Well, what is his yoke? Well, in that day, it was a very familiar metaphor for discipleship, for submitting to a teacher. And Jesus says, learn from me. It's the same word in Greek for uh, for a disciple, because a disciple simply means a learner. And so Jesus says, take my teachings upon you, my life upon you, and learn from me, submit to me. So the Christian life begins with salvation, but it continues to be a life of continually submitting to Jesus' yoke. But the question now is why? Why should we do that? Well, Jesus answers that question. He gives us two reasons, right? He says, number one, For I am gentle and humble in heart. That is, He is he, he deals humbly with our, our weaknesses. He's, he's gentle with our failures in contrast to the religious leaders. And second, he says, for my yoke, in verse 30, is easy and my burden is light. He's comparing the yoke of the rabbis to his yoke, to his teachings, to his demands. He says they're they're easy and, and it's light. But what does that mean? In what way was it easier? In what way was it lighter than all of the additional rules that the rabbis were placing upon the backs of the people? Does it mean that that, that Jesus' yoke is morally easier? Does it mean that somehow you, know, you can just do whatever you want if you take his yoke? Well, of, of course not. You could argue that it's more challenging morally speaking. Just read the Sermon on the Mount if you doubt that. No, Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light and that he will empower us to fulfill them. He will come alongside us. I think John MacArthur hits it on the head when he says this, submission to Jesus Christ brings the greatest liberation a person can experience. Actually the only true liberation that he or she can experience because only through Christ is he freed to become what God created him to be. Another John, not MacArthur, but the Apostle, First John, chapter 5, verse 3. John comments. He says, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Friends, here's how you can tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A Christian wants to obey his master. A Christian gladly receives the yoke of Jesus upon his or her back and says... Please, give me the yoke. I want it. I want to follow you. I want to be obedient to you. Is it always going to be easy? No, of course not. His teachings are hard. And sometimes it's very difficult to be a Christian. But it's not burdensome. It's joyful. We want to do it. And so friends, we're going to close with this and close with a song reminding us that celebrating the fact that Jesus is a friend of sinners. But let me close the sermon in this way every one of us in this room needs to heed one of these invitations okay so if you're here you need to heed at least one of these invitations if you're not a christian then you need to respond to jesus's invitation of salvation right you need to begin there if you are a christian then we all need to daily if we're christians heed his invitation to take his yoke upon us and to learn from him. And so Jesus' invitation applies universally. The question is, which one applies to you? Let's pray, and then we'll stand and see. Father, I pray if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl here, and they know that they have not uh, responded to the invitation of Jesus, I pray even now, as they pray this prayer, that they would do so. So friends, if you're here, and you know that you've not really repented of sin and self and trusted in Jesus, then you can pray a simple prayer. God, forgive me for my sin. I repent of my sin and living life my own way. And I trust in what your son has done. He died on the cross for my sin. He rose from the dead. And he offers me now forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus, I want to receive you as my Savior. Friends, for all of us here who have done that, then I pray that we would pray a prayer of submission, asking Jesus that He would continually, every day, that He would place His yoke upon us, and that we would joyfully receive it. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Friends, let's stand to close our service with a song, Jesus is a Friend of Sinners.